Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have our interview with James Garrity. How's it going, Ron? Very good, Ed. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, no, this is going to be a fascinating conversation, a little off our normal beaten path uh, to talk about some of this, uh, the, the topics of Jim's book. But let's uh, let me read them in and we'll get right into it. Uh, James Garrity has been the director of eight NASDAQ listed biotech companies and chair of five. He's worked on orphan drugs for over 40 years as a strategy consultant, a CEO, a leading pioneer international operations at Genzyme and a venture uh, entrepreneur a former trustee at Harvard Medical School's renowned Jocelyn Diabetes Center. He's spoken before Houses of Congress uh, at the World Economic Forum and many other high-profile conferences, a Georgetown graduate with a master's in psychology and Penn and a law degree from Yale. He's a citizen of three countries but lives in Boston. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, James Jim. We're going to call you Garrity. Thanks, Ed, and thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, whenever we have authors on, we, we like to start off with, with this question. Um, and this is the, 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 the most often question I think authors like to hear. Tell me about your book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. The, the book is, is, you know, as you can imagine, the book is truly a labor of love. And I, I wrote the book for two main reasons. When I started thinking about, you know, whether to write it, uh, why write it. And I think there were two, two reasons I wanted to and felt it was worth trying to. And one was that... Uh, there's a, there's a mission that people should know about that has partially transformed our society and our world and improved health for thousands and now millions of people around the world. It's very little known to people that needs to be told and understood to be sustained. And the second is that I've had the privilege over those 40 years of working with a remarkable group of truly admirable uh, you know, entrepreneurs, physicians, scientists, families, who have driven the orphan drug revolution and who've inspired me. And I think they've performed miracles and, and their stories deserve to be told and to be known. And I hope, hope I can do them justice. Well, absolutely. And the book, I should have mentioned the title, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patent-Centered Biotechnology. But before patient we get there- Patient-centered Oh, I'm sorry. That patient. I'm sorry. I mis misread that there. Um, uh, if we could just take a step back, add some color to your bio. I gave you the, your bio on the read-in, but give give us the give us some of the, the the background around around how you got here. Yeah, well, I'll give you the I'll give you the how I got here, which is uh, I think I say in the book that I stumbled into the orphan drug revolution, and I, I had I had been educated as a lawyer, uh, but I started my professional career really at, uh, at a firm many of your listeners will know, Bain and Company, a strategy consulting firm. And Bain had a great blue chip clientele, many very impressive companies, and uh, you know was adding a lot of value. But the, the overwhelming focus, of course, was on <clears throat> helping companies make more money and providing financial returns. And that was, of course, a good thing to do. But I didn't find it. I wasn't inspired by it. And 
I was looking for some kind of a broader contribution, and I, and I hadn't found it yet. And then I began working with a healthcare company, which at the time was called Baxter Travenol, which had a very unique business working with uh, products produced from human plasma. And one of those products treated the genetic disease called hemophilia. And uh, that was just, in, it was in 1981. It was when HIV had just been discovered. And as you and many of your listeners will know, of course, not only devastated the, the, uh, the uh, gay community, but by tainting the blood supply, devastated the hemophilia community. And so Baxter, the scientists and physicians in, working with it were you know, in overdrive trying to figure out how could we find a better and safer way to provide these drugs. And that ultimately fueled the revolution in biotechnology and recombinant proteins. And it was so inspiring to see the companies and my, my client and mentor there, Henry Tamir, who went on to found Genzyme and I went on to join him at Genzyme for over 20 years. Uh, but his passion for patients, for the, you know, bringing the patients into the, into the equation, working closely with them, seeing how their lives were transformed, that was truly inspiring and that, that shaped the rest of my career. Well, let, let's uh, let's talk about the, the book a little bit. And uh, one of our, our jokes on this is we, Ron and I are, are Austrian economists. We, we follow the Austrian economics. And the big thing that there is, is that Austrian economics has nothing to do with Austria. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, so similarly, an orphan drug has nothing to do with orphans. That's right. <laughs> right. Not so tell us, tell us a little bit about what an orphan drug is. <laughs> Well, yeah, they're, they're orphans only in a metaphorical sense, certainly not a literal <laughs> sense. And, and, you know, orphan drugs, obviously, in a very simple sense, treat orphan diseases, right? So the question is, what are orphan diseases? And they're called orphan diseases because they were orphaned by the pharmaceutical industry. And, uh, you know, the orphan drug revolution started in the early 1980s. And in the 60s and 70s, pharma, big pharma had undergone, you know, passed through many generations of leadership, had become very conservative. In the wake of other things like the SD's Kefauver amendments to the FDA laws, which had raised the bar for drug development, companies became very conservative, focused on safe Me Too kinds of drugs. Fifth, sixth, you know, statins were a classic example. Fifth, sixth, seventh generation drugs, marginal, modest, modest marginal incremental improvements, very safe, but could generate billions and billions of dollars in revenue. And they turned away from the very difficult, you know, much more, much more intractable kinds of diseases that treated smaller populations. So a group of families initially, parents got together and they said they had to do something about this. They went to Congress and they started, you know, lit a fire, a spark that ultimately became the orphan drug revolution. And it really started around some diseases that we've heard of, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, but, and they, but they, they had a, a cause slip. Somebody joined the cause and said, you know, hey, we want to do something about this. But there are thousands of these diseases, really, that, that are, are orphans that we haven't heard of. Isn't that the case? That's exactly right. You know, people, these genetic diseases are often called monogenic diseases. They tend to be a result of a defect in a single gene. And there are today over 7,000 monogenic diseases that have been identified. There are therapies today for, you know, at most uh, 100 to maybe 150. And so there are over 6,000 that have no therapy available to them. And most people have never heard of them. They have long, complicated, you know, scientific names, unpronounceable, or they're named after some long dead, obscure European discoverer from the 19th century. And people only know about them if they strike their families, if they strike a loved one. Otherwise, most people go through their lives without ever hearing about or encountering. 
those diseases individually, but collectively, those diseases afflict millions of Americans. And one of the challenges, isn't it, that because these are so rare that just diagnosis is challenging? Diagnosis is a huge challenge. Patients with these diseases are routinely undiagnosed, misdiagnosed. They talk about the diagnostic odyssey, and some studies have indicated that it takes as many as eight years from the onset of symptoms for rare disease, genetic disease patients to be properly diagnosed. And in 1983, you mentioned this earlier, but go into a little bit more detail on this. What, what is the Orphan Drug Act? Well, the Orphan Drug Act is a, uh, you know, going back to the origins, when those families went to Congress, uh, they first tried to get Congress to force drug companies to make drugs for these indications. But obviously, that was unsustainable. And the industry, of course, was dug in against that. And then they focused on, could they provide incentives that could make it sustainable and make it in the interest of all parties? And so that's what they did. And they defined orphan diseases as below a certain threshold, fewer than 200,000 people in the United States, which is less than one-tenth of 1% of the population. And, uh, and they provided a couple of incentives. Some of them are modest, like reduced filing fees. Some of them are informal, but very important, like closer consultation with the FDA on regulatory pathways. And some of them are very tangible and financial. Most importantly, a period of market exclusivity uh, post-approval because for many of these drugs, although many of them were once patent protected, it takes so long to figure out how to you know, develop these drugs and get them approved. that by the time they're approved, the patent life is either expired or almost expired. And so to provide some ability to, to, to recoup a return on investment, they were given a period of market exclusivity post-approval to, to, to be able to receive that return. Is there any um, what's what's called off-label drugs that are found to be helpful in some of these diseases? Like we have, you have a current drug that is, that is used for something else and approved for that, but then it turns out that it's also helpful for an orphan uh, disease as well. Sometimes, sometimes that works. Sometimes those drugs have a modest benefit. Sometimes, you know, that kind of process has been abused. There have been cases of people who didn't actually do any development, jacking up the prices of old drugs, and that's not, that's not the kind of innovation that I'm writing about or that this industry focuses on. But, but the, the fact is that truly effective transformational therapies generally require these diseases to be treated at the, at the root cause, at the underlying genetic or physiological you know, protein defect. And it's very rare that an existing drug can be repurposed to have that kind of effect. It might be just something where it maybe relieves the symptoms, but doesn't really exactly. does doesn't attack the disease correct fully, right? Is that correct? Exactly right. So, uh, do you think that that is more uh, legislation needed, or do you think that something along the lines of these the the, the incentives uh, would would be more helpful for these companies? Well, I think there's a certain kind of legislation we could discuss around these extremely rare ultra orphan diseases. But maybe we'll come back to that. One topic that I know is important to you and your listeners is drug pricing. And I would say, as opposed to new legislation, one of the most important uh, needs here is that these misguided uh, campaigns to cap or reduce drug prices uh, not be supported, because the only thing those will do is end innovation. Investors follow those very closely. And whenever there's a movement on Capitol Hill to cap drug prices, investment, which is happening today, dries up in the sector. What it's very important for you know, patients and families and citizens to understand is no patient pays the list price of a drug. That's why we have insurance. 
right? 95% of Americans have health insurance. The other 5% qualify for patient assistance programs. And what really matters to patients and families are the insurance policies they have and the out-of-pocket costs, the co-pays and the deductibles. And the fact that those keep going up is what patients really ought to be focused on. Yeah, that's that's uh, so true. That's been kind of a, a mantra of ours talking about this stuff. Nobody pays the explanation of benefits is one of the most confusing things you can look at as to what actually gets gets paid. But we are up against our first break already. I want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. You, this, uh, we also have an ability to rate this podcast. And the best way to do that is to go to, ready for this, ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit melio.com accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Jim Garrity. He's the author of Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, which was published, I believe, in September of this year, Jim. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I know I told you this before we went live, but I learned a lot. But it was an excellent just mix of inspirational stories and entrepreneurship. You got the science in there and the medicine, but in a way that the average reader can understand. So I just wanted to commend you for putting together such a, a well-balanced, inspiring book that held my interest from the first to the last page. That's very nice to you, Ron. Nice of you to say that. That was my goal in writing it, and I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. So it, to bring in just one of those inspiring stories, because it's really hard to pick one, I'm just going to pick the first one. Can you tell us a little bit about Abby Myers and her son, David? Sure. Happy to. The book starts with Abby's story. And Abby is, you know, sometimes called the mother of the orphan drug revolution. Uh, she was a self-described housewife from Connecticut when, uh, you know, when this situation developed and uh, had no experience in organizing or politics or anything. But her son had a genetic disease, Tourette syndrome. And there was a drug that was on the market that was being tested for larger indication for schizophrenia. And the, the drug company that was testing it thought that that could be a very lucrative market if it worked. It didn't work in schizophrenia. And so they pulled it off the market even though it worked in Tourette's syndrome. And Abby was so outraged by that, that she went, you know, she joined a patient organization as most parents do, the Tourette's patient organization. And she got involved in thinking about what could they do? Ultimately, they got together with other parents. They went to Washington and they looked for a way to, to get the, force the drug companies to do something. Uh, happily, you know, Abby was, a, a, was, was not gonna take no for an answer. And she met a, a wonderful ally in a man many of your listeners will know, Henry Waxman, a longtime congressman from California, longtime chairman of the House Health Committee. And it turned out, I sometimes say the book is a story of miracles and you know the Orphan Drug Act passage was certainly one of them. Henry Waxman had just had a patient come to him with the same problem, a drug that was available to treat her child, different disease, was no longer made available. And so Henry Waxman started holding hearings uh, to, to try to get interest in this kind of a bill, and nobody came. The drug companies opposed it, and nobody had any interest. You know, in those years, genetic diseases were a little bit like cancer was back then. You know, your listeners remember before Betty Ford, you know, talked about breast cancer, nobody would talk about having cancer. It was, a, it was an embarrassment. It was, a, you know, it was kind of a disgrace, and uh, people didn't talk about it. But now, you know, they started talking about it, but nobody came to the hearings. And then the next miracle, which was an amazing story, really, was um, an article came out announcing that there was nobody was coming to the hearings and they weren't going anywhere. Came to the attention of an actor that many of your listeners of my <laughs> generation will know, Jack Klugman, who was yep. then starring in a, uh, a medical docudrama called Quincy M.E., Medical Examiner. And Jack had a brother named Maurice, who was his producer, who had a rare disease. And they thought this was wrong. So they filmed an episode of Quincy focused on Tourette syndrome and a child modeled on Abby's son, David, who couldn't get the drug. And it was very effective, of course. And then they made a plea at the end for support for this. And so Congress was flooded with letters. 50,000 letters showed up in you know, Waxman's office and other offices. And all of a sudden, Klugman came and testified, front page of the New York Times, and the bill got passed. And then Abby went on from there to found the National Organization of Rare Diseases, which has advocated for you know, access and, and support for therapy development for hundreds of diseases in the years since. Yeah. And you, you also mentioned the John Travolta movie from 76, The Boy yep. in the Plastic Bubble. Right. I guess th those types of pop culture really help the movement by bringing awareness to more people. Um, 
I, I know you were talking about the challenges in diagnostics with Ed, but you also talk about two families 40 years apart. And, right. and there has been some tremendous progress, hasn't there? Well, there's been. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I thought about whether the word revolution was hyperbole. And I, you know, I convinced myself and a lot of other people convinced me it wasn't. And the experience of those families, I think, is, you know, the clearest demonstration of the revolution in society. 40 years ago, again, nobody would talk about these diseases. You know, parents would honestly be told, you know, get ready for your child to die or, you know, send your child to an institution. There's nothing to be done. And, you know, patient organizations were, you know, would provide moral support. Patients would come together and, you know, kind of shared grief. Um, and there was no, no diagnosis, no physicians knew about this and no companies were working on therapies. Today, 40 years later, you know, many physicians are working on therapies. Many companies are involved. Patient organizations have learned that therapies can be developed, and they're involved in now, you know, sponsoring research. They're bringing together scientists and physicians working on these diseases from around the world. They're funding research. They're helping uh, medical centers advance clinical trials. They're providing data, so-called patient registries, that are very helpful in getting drugs developed and approved. And they're working with companies at their side to think about, you know, what is the drug development path? And how does a drug get approved by the FDA? So the experience of those parents 40 years ago and today, I think, as a result of these, you know, what's happened in this revolution is night and day. Yeah. And <clears throat> I know you mentioned the Orphan Drug Act of 83, and I found it interesting that Reagan, President Reagan at the time, was planning to veto it until somebody ran an ad in the local Palm Springs newspaper. Can you kind of talk about that? No, that's exactly right. You know, it finally got passed by the Senate. That took another episode of Quincy featuring a senator who was going to oppose the bill. And finally, he came around based on a big demonstration. But uh, then, yes, then Reagan, it was the bill was passed by Congress at the very end of 1982. So almost exactly 40 years ago, as we're speaking. And then Reagan, you know, who was a conservative and was generally not in favor of certain kinds of what were considered, you know, government intervention in business, um, was about to go on his annual vacation to Palm Springs and announced before leaving that he was going to veto the bill on his return. And then, as you said, you know, a lot of mothers uh, knew Nancy Reagan and they knew the papers that Nancy read and they knew the social circles that Nancy moved in. And they talked to those mothers and they persuaded those mothers that this would be, you know, a, a disgrace and a tragedy. And Nancy got persuaded. And then she talked to her husband. And the day he came back from vacation, he signed the bill. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, Jim, you were talking about how you, uh, you know, debated whether to use the word revolution. I certainly would have used it because you talk about two simple metrics that demonstrate the success of this revolution. Can you talk about those, the number of drugs approved and the number of patients benefiting? Yeah. In the 10 years before the Orphan Drug Act was passed, there was a bare handful of drugs in those 10 years collectively uh, that that had, you know, that were, that were approved for rare genetic diseases. And uh, today, you know, because so many physicians and scientists and, and biotech and pharma companies are working on these, every year there are hundreds of drugs passed for different rare diseases. And so, you know, that by that metric, I mean, it's, it's really, again, kind of night and day. And the patients who would benefit, again, the patients who might have benefited in those early years were, you know, were probably counted in the, the hundreds or a few thousand. And today, those numbers are millions. And again, as we talked about during a break, you know, the orphan drug revolution really has been a global revolution. And today, there are millions of patients who benefit from these drugs all around the world. And so the, the numbers collectively are 
literally orders of magnitude higher than they were before this phenomenon began. Yeah, your your term miracle <laughs> keeps com- coming into my mind. You know, most people, I think, on this, uh, most of our listeners have probably heard of Genentech, a company that was founded in 1976, went public in 1980, but a lot fewer have heard of Genzyme. Can right. you tell us a little bit about Henry Blair and Henry, what is it, Termier? Termier, yeah. 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 It, you know, Genentech, people deserve, Genentech deserves to be widely known. Genentech triggered the biotechnology, you know, era. Its IPO was a hugely successful IPO and got a lot of people interested, believing that there could be a biotechnology industry. And, and Genentech has been a great company, no question about it. Um, but there are two, two ways, I think, in which it's fair to say that when Henry, well, Henry Blair was the founder of Genzyme, when Henry Tamir joined Genzyme, really transformed it in two fundamental ways that were different than any other biotechnology company. And it was in part because the CEOs of almost every other company in those years was a scientist. And Henry was an economist. And so there were two things that uh, he believed. The first was that, um, that companies needed to control their own destiny. You know, the mindset of biotechnology in the 1980s was a so-called research boutique mindset. You'd have, uh, you know, Nobel laureates on the board and you'd have, uh, you know, academic, you know, world leading academic scientists uh, doing the work. But then when the drugs, if a drug got approved, it would be licensed out to Big Pharma to commercialize. And, um, and Big Pharma companies wouldn't commercialize or for drugs. They, wouldn't, they didn't see them as important enough. And they also didn't understand the way of working with patients and regulators and payers to, to, to have them understand the value proposition. And that was the second aspect of the revolution. You know, people thought when you did the math, when you did the math and you looked at how much did it cost to develop these drugs and how many failed and what would it take to fund research in an ongoing you know, pipeline of innovative drugs? And you took a disease like Gaucher disease, which was the first disease that Genzyme successfully developed a therapy for. The answer was about $250,000 a year. And most people at that time in, in the 1980s said, nobody's going to pay that. No payer, no insurance company, no government is going to pay that. But Henry believed the question was, did society want these children treated? And if we had an effective therapy, did society want it to be made available to them? And he believed we did. That's why we have insurance. That's what people want from healthcare and health insurance. And that if we explained why they cost so much because of the cost of development and the small number of patients, and that this is what it took to sustain this industry, that people would support that. And although there was a lot of, you know, a lot of resistance and a lot of complaining, a lot of the insurance industry and a lot of others. Ultimately, all of those drugs, it's, I think it's fair to say, are pretty much universally reimbursed in the, in, in the United States, in Europe, and in every developed country. And you, you mentioned the first drug that <clears throat> Genzyme did. Was that, was that Sarah Days? Yes. C- can you explain that? You talk about a miracle. The thousands of metric tons of human right. placenta. I mean, this was amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, Genzyme was kind of a biotech company, but but the original version of the drug called Ceridase was, it was a trace element that the scientist at the NIH, Roscoe Brady, who discovered it, had found was available. The only place you could find it was in trace quantities in human placentas. And human placentas in those years were used to produce other, extract other proteins like human albumin, but only in a few places in the world. And this, this enzyme was available in such small quantities that you had to process like a wine press, 20,000 placentas 
to get enough ends on one patient. Wow. <clears throat> That's amazing. <laughs> well, Jim, this has been fantastic. Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com and check out our Patreon show, which you can subscribe to. And that is patreon.com slash TSOE. That channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check out 90 Minds at 90minds.com. And at a certain tier of that Patreon channel, if you subscribe, you can get a shout out, as did Geraldine Carter, uh, who runs the podcast Business Strategy for CPAs. Check Geraldine out at geraldinecarter.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on the soul of enterprise with the author of Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution, The Promise of Patient-Centered Biotechnology, Jim Garrity. And uh, Jim, you tell a little bit more about the story of Saturday, especially the, the, the trials. Yeah, so that's, that is a great question. That's kind of the beginning of the story that Ron was asking about, about sourcing the placentas. So, you know, the, the, the disease, of course, was called Gaucher disease. You know, Philippe Gaucher was a French physician in the 19th century who first diagnosed it. But 100 years later, in the 1960s, you know, nobody had any idea how to treat it. And a scientist, a brilliant, very passionate scientist at the NIH named Roscoe Brady, uh, had been working on this for 20, 30 years and had identified the, the protein, the genetic defect, the protein defect, and had identified this one enzyme with the long name glucocerebrosidase was defective. And he believed that if you administered that to patients, you know, it should correct the disease. So he started to do a trial, but as you probably know, there's a, a sort of a longstanding FDA, you know, 
policy that says drugs should not be tested in children until they've been proven to work in adults. But somehow one mother um, got around that and she, you know, she had a child with Gaucher disease. She quit her job, went to work at the NIH full time and basically, you know, wouldn't let, let Roscoe alone until he enrolled her then three year old son, whose name was Brian Berman, in the trial. And so, you know, when you're testing these very complex biologics, it's very hard to know what the dose of the enzyme is that you need to correct the defect, right? So Roscoe had a hypothesis. They treated seven patients, of whom six were adults, and one was Brian. In all six of the adults, the drug showed no effect whatsoever, no benefit of any kind. In Brian, it showed a dramatic benefit. And one of the symptoms of Gaucher disease is a hugely distended belly. You know, people often say it looks like somebody has a basketball in their stomach. And Brian had that. And when he was given the, the therapy, his stomach receded. And as I said, instead of having a basketball in his stomach, he was bouncing a basketball in the halls of the NIH. But then, because it was so difficult to get this enzyme, they would run out of enzyme. Not intentionally, but they just couldn't get it. And his belly would expand again. Then they'd get the 20,000 placentas, they'd get the enzyme, they'd administer it, his stomach would recede, he'd be healthy again. So at the end of the trial, you know, a lot of people said to Henry, look, Henry, the trial failed. You know, six out of seven patients, it didn't work. One patient, they said, you know, that's an anecdote. You can't build a company on one anecdotal case. But Henry and Roscoe believed that they'd seen the drug work. It was, again, one of those miracles. And Roscoe believed fervently that it was a matter of learning what the right dose was. So sure enough, Genzyme was able to raise the money to do another trial, 13 patients, and the drug worked beautifully in all 13 at the right dose. Wow, what the, such a great story! Such a great story. I, I want, want to move on to to a uh, another topic that you write eloquently about in the book, and this is the n equals one technology. But give me a, a minute to set this up. Um, a, as you know, we all got our degrees in virology, immunology, and public health <laughs> um, during COVID nineteen. <laughs> Um, but from all, all from Google University, right? uh, but what, and, and correct anything that I say that is incorrect, but this is how I have it in my mind that the, the they sequenced the, 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 the problem with COVID-19 or the, 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 the actual um, virus itself in less than 24 or 48 hours. And we're able to then take that and turn it into the potential for the, the, uh, the, the, the vaccine that we all received um, in a very short period of time. And then it had to go through all of the approvals and trials is the N equals one technology similar to what they did with the RNA stuff, but just in reverse where we're saying, all right, let's understand the human genome and how, how it, what's wrong and how to correct it. Is that a, a decent analog? Yeah, no, that, there's a lot to that. And then I, by the way, the first thing I should say is, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist or a physician. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I try to, I sometimes say I try to explain this in, you know, layman's terms, but I only understand it in layman's terms. So uh, <laughs> that's helpful for all of us, actually. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'll try to give a simple answer to that. But I think basically, yes, you, you're right. Uh, you know, new technologies, genetic, our understanding of genetics obviously continues to explode in the wake of the Human Genome Project and discovery since then. And you know, scientists have come to understand, you know, we all know, you know, DNA makes RNA, right? And, and now we've understood a lot about RNA and about this mRNA, messenger RNA. And, and the fact is much of our understanding about mRNA was developed in the pursuit of treating rare diseases. And there are a number of mRNA therapies that can treat rare diseases effectively. And even Moderna in its early years before COVID 
one of its areas of focus was using its technology to treat genetic diseases. And so, yes, it was much of that technology that was then repurposed, if you want to use that term, retargeted uh, to, uh, you know, to viruses when the COVID, when the COVID epidemic broke out. We had a, a guest on um, uh, Matt Ridley and um, uh, I'm sure. sorry, I have the, the, the name wrong. And he, but anyway, he, he talked about how that this might be the, the last pandemic that we have because of the technology that we have. What you, would be your thoughts on that? Well, that's a good hope. Um, I think uh, it would be optimistic to think we've had the last pandemic, I think. But it was a wake up call, of course, to all of us in society uh, and to all you know, people in research and industry. And so I think people would say, yes, you know, everything goes in waves. Right. And for many years, there was a feeling in biotech and pharma that there was not an economic return around infectious diseases. That has now been you know, clearly shown otherwise, and also a responsibility to public health. And so as a result today, there are many companies working on uh, what they, you might call pandemic preparedness or what are sometimes called pan-viral vaccines of different kinds. So I think the way I would summarize all that is to say, I, I think it would be hugely optimistic to say we won't see another pandemic. I hope what we can say is that we'll be able to address another pandemic, you know, much more effectively and quickly at the outset. Do you think it'll be more trusting of the, the mRNA technology and the ability to uh, sequence the genome of whatever disease and get it out to the population a lot faster than we did this time with COVID? I think, yes, we will. Uh, I mean, again, unfortunately, as we all know, there are, you know, what are always to, to many of us, I think a surprising number of people who won't accept what is, you know, pretty clearly very high quality, unbiased, un, not political science. Uh, so I think we may still have many people who won't accept it, but I think the, the government and the industry and the public health community will definitely be able to see that these drugs can be developed and made available to people much more quickly. Okay. Let's talk about now this, this, the, I, the term I used N equals one, I probably yeah. should have had you define that first. Talk about what that is. Well, N equals one or N of one, you know, that's a, that's a term. Uh, obviously, it's a term of you know, basic statistics, right? It's one. one sample one size data, equals one. <laughs> right. One, one data point, and it's in the sample set. So, so N of one in this context refers to a patient with a unique genetic defect. And there are, you know, there are rare diseases, there are ultra rare diseases, and then there are these diseases that so far as are known, this very specific defect in the genome has never been seen in another patient. And so the question is, you know, what do we do? And there are great scientists and physicians working with families and patient organizations to see if those can be treated. And there have been some amazing cases. There was a flagship article written in the New England Journal of Medicine now about two years ago about a young girl who's also in the book named Myla, treated by a physician named Timothy Yu at Boston Children's Hospital and her mother, Julia. And uh, amazing, you know, there was no possibility of treating Myla. There was no therapy anywhere in the world that could be effective. And Tim and the team at Boston Children's developed a customized RNA sequence that was specifically geared to the defect that Myla had. And they administered it to her. And for a short period of time, it worked. It clearly worked. Uh, it turned out, you know, these diseases are relentlessly progressive. And beyond a certain point, a therapy, even when it's effective, you know, is not a cure and it cannot reverse the progression that is ongoing. So it wasn't able to halt and reverse 
the progression and Myla ended up, you know, passing away later. But, uh, but that set the mark that you could identify, you could develop therapies like that. And if children could be treated as, you know, newborns and infants, it could have a truly transformational uh, impact. And how would we go about like you know, the, you know, the FDA taking that through a testing process? Would they have to approve the, 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 the delivery mechanism or because they really couldn't approve, obviously, the individual therapy because that would make no sense. Right. Yeah. Some of them, like in that case, you really don't need FDA approval. You know, there are there are many procedures for what's you know generally called the practice of medicine. And in a hospital where the scientist gets approval from his, you know, what's often called an IRB, the Institutional Review Board or the Ethics Committee within the medical center to perform a treatment as a therapy for the child, the FDA doesn't get involved. And if there's really only an N of one, that may never get to the FDA. But what we are facing, which is kind of the next generation or the next you know, step from there to ultra-orphan diseases are, can we get a platform where there are many similar diseases which use a similar process? And can we get to the point where the FDA can approve the platform uh, as a broad platform and then individual patients can be treated subject to showing only that that therapy is consistent with the approval that the platform received? That doesn't exist today. But that's an important regulatory step that's going to be needed to allow these ultra-orphan diseases to be treated effectively. And the penultimate chapter of the book is, is entitled The Challenge of Affordability, where you talk about how do we make these things affordable for all of these patients in, in the future? So t- talk a little bit about that. You know, the fact is that they're, they're, I, I would actually say they're surprisingly affordable. And the reason I say that is you know, think about the different elements, right? You look at it at the patient and family perspective, and you look at it at the social and, you know, national perspective. At the patient perspective, as I think I mentioned earlier, you know, 95% of patients have insurance, 5% qualify for patient assistance. So none of those patients or families pay the cost of the drug. They have insurance and they only pay what the co-pays and the deductibles are. And the key there is keeping the co-pays and the deductibles reasonable. That's critical. But so long as they're reasonable, the patients can afford the drugs. And in Europe, you know, with national health insurance, the drugs are actually free to the patients. At the social level, uh, these drugs afflict so few patients that they have no meaningful impact on the overall cost of health care. And one way you can look at that is, you know, we, people talk about health care being, let's say, whatever, 17% of GDP, and that's a lot. But drugs are only about 10 to 12% of health care costs, and they're the most effective. 10 or 12%. And over the last 10 or 20 years, drugs as a percentage of healthcare have not gone up. And the reason is you have to look at the life cycle. Every year, drugs that are reimbursed for billions and billions of dollars, 10 billion, $20 billion, go off patent. And the price of those drugs, as we all know, drop 90%. And 90% of all prescriptions written in America today are for generic drugs. So all of that money that is saved is recycled from the system goes to pay for these orphan drugs. And so the cost of drugs as a percentage of the healthcare system doesn't go up at all. So they are, I would say, fully affordable within the context of the healthcare system. Wow, this is just a fascinating story. And uh, Ron's gonna take you the rest of the way home in the last segment, but we are up against our last break. Wanna remind you, you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Website again is The Soul of Enterprise, show notes, previews to upcoming shows, want to remind you that this last break is sponsored by my employer, Sage, and we'll catch you on the other side. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Jim Garrity talking about his book, Inside the Orphan Drug Revolution. And Jim, I loved it. You brought up uh, International Rare Disease Day, which originally was on February 29th, which I, I, I thought that was great. But when you talked about orphan drugs in other countries, you said there's about 27 countries that have orphan drug laws. But tell us about some of the challenges, even in those countries, like with universal health care, but then also in the poor countries like China and India and sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, no, you know, that is part of the challenge. And, you know, this has always been a mission. And I, I think I mentioned Henry Tamir earlier, who was my longtime, you know, client, mentor, friend. And, and if Abby Myers was the mother of the orphan drug revolution, I think, you know, people have said Henry Tamir was the father, and I think deservedly so. Um, and Henry always used to say, you know, when we were at Genzyme, that our mission, our aspiration was not to serve the 1 billion people in the developed world, it was to treat the 7 billion people in the world. And that's a mission that we still have a long way to go to achieve. Um, in places like Europe and Japan, uh, actually access to orphan drugs is often higher. The prevalence penetration is even greater given national health insurance and, you know, and other systems. Uh, but when you go into developing countries for obvious reasons, as you go down the economic or socioeconomic scale, um, access becomes more of a challenge. Many middle-income countries from, uh, you know, South America, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Colombia have very good access. Some countries in Asia, Korea, Taiwan have very good access. 
but there are many places and, you know, high on the list would be India, China, and Africa, which collectively have, uh, you know, three and a half billion people um, in the world. And, uh, you know, finding access. So there's no easy solution to that, of course. But what, what Genzyme always believed and what I think I talked about this in the book, but I think a path forward is here is a long-term path, but is for, you know, companies to take their responsibility to try to provide some access and find one patient that, you know, is often put on what you might call compassionate use or free therapy. And then to work with the country and the society to see, you know, are there other stakeholders, uh, whether they are the government or whether they are philanthropy, wealthy families, uh, who can who can help provide care for some other patients and have it gradually build over time and develop the capabilities in those countries to care for patients and hopefully develop the, you know, the support as the economic systems grow so that over time we can get more and more of those children and patients on therapy. Yeah. There seems like you say, there seems to be a great firewall in China with yes. <laughs> letting in these orphan drugs. Also, I also sure. found it really interesting. You, you brought up the health technology assessment, even in countries with universal health insurance, they have other ways to block access to these types of therapies, don't they? Right. They do for sure. And, um, you know, there's a value to health technology assessment, but but there are many ways to do it, right? And, um, <clears throat> you know, when it's properly done, and f- let's say that you could just use the word fully loaded cost, right? Um, if, you, if you factor in not only, let's say, the cost of the alternative therapy that a, a child might get, which is what they typically look at, but when you look at the benefit of these drugs, these therapies, in keeping children out of the emergency room, out of long-term hospitalization, out of wheelchairs, off ventilators, you know, in school, getting jobs, allowing their parents to work, allowing them not to need 24-hour, you know, round-the-clock care. Uh, those costs don't tend to get factored into health technology assessment equations. They only look narrowly at the, you know, the patient's medical expenses. And so often those assessments are used to block access to these drugs, whereas if they were done in the way that people who you know, look at these diseases actually would like them to be valued, they'd be found to be very cost-effective. And, and just on that pricing issue, I know you talked a little bit with Ed about this already, but I was just really impressed how you dealt with that tension between the affordability of the drugs and, and like the mission-driven uh, purpose of, of Genzyme that you were a part of. And, and I, I don't know if it was Henry who said this, but he said, we have two prices. It's either the commercial price or it's free. Right. Explain that. Well, no, that's exactly right. You know, the, uh, and I, you know, I represented Genzyme in Europe and, you know, in many other countries, Latin America and China and Asia around the world. And, you know, if you go to a country and the cost of the drug was $250,000 a year, you know, it was very difficult for societies to afford it. But if you said, well, suppose we reduce the price by half, suppose we reduce it to $125,000. Well, the answer was it wasn't actually much more broadly affordable even then, right? And so the answer was let's let's provide a price that allows us to sustain uh, providing the therapy, and then let's over time let's where it's not affordable, where it's not affordable, but a society is working in good faith to make access. Let's provide compassionate use. Let's put as many patients on therapy for free as we can, and a balance of patients on reimbursement. But to just lower the price makes it unsustainable for everyone. Right. And we were talking about this during the last break, but, you know, everybody freaks out when they see some of these prices. I mean, from 150000 to 
two to three million dollars per year. But if we pass price caps on these drugs, we won't get the innovation, will we? No, we won't, Rod. And your, you know, your reference to the two or three million actually bears uh, a little, you know, discussion. I think because there are drugs now that are being priced at two to three million dollars a year, but those are gene therapies, and those are one-time treatments. And as wonderful as these therapies that we've been talking about are, Genzymes therapies for Gaucher disease, for example, and many others like it, they they provide truly life-saving transformational benefit. But patients have to go their chronic lifetime therapy. Patients have to go into the hospital typically every two to four weeks for an IV infusion that can take, you know, four to five hours. A gene therapy can provide by providing the correct gene as opposed to replacing the protein can provide lifetime therapeutic benefit in a single administration. So the $2 million price, $3 million price is for that one-time administration. And that certainly has a sticker shock quality to it. But if you think about a child who's going on therapy, at the age of two or three, and who's going to live 30, 40, 50 or more years, and you add up the $250,000 or $300,000 a year, it's, it's actually going to cost society 10 to 12 to $15 million in therapy for that child. And the, the truly ironic paradox we have today, and I'm, I'm living this, this is being lived today. If two different companies are thinking about developing a therapy for a genetic disease, and one says, I can cure this with a single administration, an investor says, okay, what's the revenue potential? The answer is, at most, $2 million, $3 million a patient. Or another company says, I can develop a therapy that will need to be taken chronically for life. The investor says, what's the revenue potential? And the answer is 10 to $15 million for patient. Even though the gene therapy is much better for the patient, much better for the society, much better for the healthcare system, the reimbursement system today still favors the chronic therapy. Wow. Uh, Jim, we've only got about a minute, so really only a half a minute. But tell us about Third Rock Ventures, because I love the slogan, dared to believe nothing was impossible. Well, that was that was the mindset. And, uh, you know, Third Rock, in its way, uh, I think, revolutionized the venture world, the way the Genzyme that revolutionized the orphan drug community or the biotech community. Like pharma in an earlier time, venture investing had become much more conservative. And Third Rock believed that it was important to have a big vision put the patient at the center and and aim for the fences. And that was a great, great thing to be part of. Excellent. Well, Jim, thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you and your book inside the orphan drug revolution, folks. It's a great read. Uh, You'll learn a lot and you'll be inspired same time. So thanks a lot, Jim. And thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. What do we have coming up next week, Ed? Next week, Ron, we are going to talk to professor of political science, uh, Tony Gill about his article, Rethinking Scroogenomics. I'm not going to rethink it, Ed. It's one of our best shows. <laughs> anyway, that's great. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. But in the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.